as you find your seats, if you'll turn with me in your Old Testament to 2 Samuel chapter 11, as we begin our journey together this summer through Orangewood's 10 Deadly Sins, a reminder that really a lot of these sins aren't unique just to us. Uh, Many of these sins will be very, very typical of a church like ours. Uh, especially the, uh, the sin we're looking at today, uh, the story we look at this morning. This is an issue that has plagued us since we fell. And I know it's still plaguing us today. So I'm glad you're here. It's an amazing journey that God has us on. I wish you could see uh, uh, through the week what He does to my heart. Uh, it's so humbling to stand before you. I have such the honor to open up God's Word, but... Know that he's doing his business with me all week so I can stand before you with knees knocking, asking God's blessing to come and speak powerfully through a broken sinner who desperately needs to hear this stuff too. So we're together in this, all right? We're journeying together um, and hopefully spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Begin with a question. How is your lust problem? Okay, don't make eye contact with them. Uh, you might think it's me. Look down quickly. Look around to those around you. But how is your lust problem? That is the question that I began to ask when I was a youth pastor, having a meal with a teenage boy. The, usually the first thing I would ask, and we'd sit down before we even ordered, I'd ask, how's your lust problem? And they'd start looking around like, who told them? What are you talking about? I said, well, you're a red-blooded teenage boy, right? And he'd say, yeah. And I'd reach over and I'd start to feel her pulse. and say, you have a pulse, right? Yeah. How's your last problem? Because the reality is, I'm assuming you have it. Because I know who you are. And this problem with lust is not just contained to hormonal teenagers. It includes singles. Married men, older married men, women. It's an incredible problem that plagued even a man that Scripture would say had a heart for God. It plagued even a man that we would look at in Scripture and say he's a hero. He he fought giants. And yet this sin of lust, this giant killer would be a giant killer to him, to his family, to his reputation to his reign, to his children. It wreaked havoc with one of God's most precious children. One, a king named David, who would so clearly point us to a king named Jesus. And the unbelievable devastation that reigned in his life, because in his reign, lust got a hold of him. And oh, does it have a hold on the American church. And oh, does it have its hold on you and me and so many of us. Do you know that the Americans are going to spend more money this year on pornography than the annual sales of Coca-Cola? You know that two-thirds of every visit to a website is seeking some kind of sexual satisfaction. 
I mean, we know the statistics. I could spend my whole time telling you story after story of those next to you and beside you that are struggling and failing. We could spend the entire time talking about the clergy that are so struggling and so caught up in this incredible sin called lust. But really, I think God has for us something more than just looking at statistics. We want to say, what is this incredible plague that would capture David's heart? What would this incredible plague that would make a man who would say, I panteth for the Lord, like I panteth, like a deer panteth for water, what would make him become a dirty, sleazy, peeping Tom? And worse, what would be the sin that would lead him to become an adulterer? And worse, a murderer. And i got to tell you, the story of David to me is, is one of the scariest stories. Because David's a good guy. And I mean, David's one of God's warriors. I mean, David really, really loved God. Read the Psalms. You know what it does to this pastor? It makes me realize if King David can do what King David could do, what is Jeff Jakes capable of? And I shudder. I got to tell you, one of my greatest fears in life would be someday I stand before you and I say, the office that I love, the job that I love, the privilege that I have of preaching God's word to you, I'm disqualified. I tell God I'd rather go home. Please take me out. I love, I love Jim Henry. He was preaching on lust. Jim Henry, the famous uh, uh, First Baptist pastor for so many years, an incredible warrior for God. And he says, I told God, and I have prayed this prayer since hearing it. He says, God, I'd rather have you kill me than let me fall into adultery. Just kill me. And then he told his congregation, if you hear I had a heart attack, don't think I was just sleeping around, all right? <laughs> but I know that... Uh, uh, that prayer, because I have a similar prayer. God, if King David can do it, there's not a man, woman, or child who couldn't struggle or isn't struggling with it too. And if King David could go to those depths, don't you think for a minute there's anyone here, anyone here, that isn't tempted and couldn't fall. And I tell you what, that should be a battle cry to all of us. I'm telling you right now, that should make your prayer life a little bit different for your elders and your deacons and your pastors. Because when you look at someone in the crosshairs like David messing up the way he did, and we're going to look at it here in a minute, it should all make us hit the floor in prayer. All right, here's the deal. And again, we could look at this, we can look at this in any different way. I mean, basically, let me me, uh, summarize this for you. Lust is a deadly sin that we're looking at. Lust, it's bad. Okay? It's sinful. And stop doing it. Let's pray. I wish it was that easy. I think that this morning I could preach on lust in a way that can make you feel guilty. I think I could hit and preach on lust in a way that makes you feel dirty. And I think I could preach on lust this morning in a way that can make you shift in your chair and make you feel uncomfortable. But I don't think that's what Jesus has for me today. I think I could also give you four steps to help you with your lust problem. Four tried and true areas. If you do A, B, C, and D, that somehow you're going to be set free. But I think lust is a whole lot deeper and bigger than the four steps I could give you. So we're not going to do that either. 
So I want you to journey with me today. And I, and I, I promise you, this, this has been a struggle for me. I mean, how can I present this to you in a way that's fresh, in a way that's maybe a little bit different? Not just a moral lecture on banging you over the head. Not just something that we're going to feel bad about for a few weeks and then forget about. But what's going to really change us from the inside out? What is really going to get to the core and the root of that? And that's my hope and prayer today, is I want to try to look at lust from God's perspective and why it's so bad to Him. I mean, you know, we, we usually deal with how bad it is for us. We want to cover it up. We want to hide. We don't want to hear the statistics. We don't want to deal with it. But what does it mean to God? And I think if we get it, if we start to see sin from His perspective, maybe it'll work deeply into our hearts because not only can we see from His perspective, we'll see how He can help us and how Jesus has set us free. You see, it really, lust is really not about a sin of our eyes. The core of the problem with lust, lust is really not an issue of our eyes. Listen, it's an issue of our hearts. That's the truth. This is not going to be about just your eyes and you've got to cover them up and make a covenant with your eyes like Job did in Job 31.1. Not to look lustfully upon a girl. Really, lust, if we're going to get to the core, we're going to take the sin and we're going to start like an onion, peeling it back and it'll probably make us cry a bit. And we get to the core of the sin. And really, what is behind this? Why is this pull at God's heart so much? We'll realize this. Listen. Before we choose to lust, listen, before we choose to lust, we have to reject God's love. You see, what's really happening here is his rejection. Why is God so upset about this? Lust is the fruit, the response of us rejecting God and his love, his provision. Really, lust starts not with our hearts moving toward lust. Lust starts with our hearts moving away from God. You see, if lust is a matter of heart, we got to get to the heart of the matter. Peel back those layers. And at the core, we'll see the heinousness of the sin this is to God. And we'll be like David, my hope and prayer is, and say these amazing words against you and you alone have I sinned. And to get to the heart of the matter, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba found in 2 Samuel 11. I'm going to read through the whole story. I'm going to give us a running commentary as we go along. Kind of unpacking this and saying, what is at the heart of this? What is really happening as I read through and you read along with me? And I want to ask you four questions that we begin. First one is this. What was David really looking for? I mean, what was David really looking for on that roof that night? You know that he got more than he bargained. You know he wasn't looking for murder. You know he wasn't looking for a sword to pierce his family his entire life. You know he wasn't looking to tarnish God's name and his reputation. But what was David really looking for? Secondly, what was David missing in his life? What was missing? Right after the story, Nathan the prophet comes alongside. He's going to confront David with his sin. And he's going to tell him a story. And David's going to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. And he's going to get it. And he's going to realize. And what Nathan says to him, he says this basically. What hasn't God given you? He's given you everything. He's, he's taken you from a little shepherd boy. And he's made you a king. He's put wives in your arms. He's given you riches. And if that weren't enough, if you'd ask him, he'd give you more. What was he missing in his life 
And why was it so offensive to God? Why is it such a big deal? And lastly, what can we do to avoid it? Let me pray, and then we'll start reading this. This will be the majority of our time, just reading the story together. We'll come back, and we'll look at some of the answers to these questions. Let's pray together. Father, we're here. We're in your presence. And we're about ready to open your word. And we need your Holy Spirit to come and to work. And to speak and to enlighten our minds to the truth of your word, to the the beauty of your character, to the depth of our sin. So, Father, that we right now can do business with you. Father, it's, it's a dangerous thing to be in the hands of an angry God. But we know that you're a merciful God. And, Father, this is a sin that we really, really want to cover up. And many of us have covered it up for a while. The truth is, Father, there's some that maybe we never suspect, but a room this size, there's many that are right now drowning in a sinful, lustful world. Maybe they've concealed it from their wife and their children or their workmates, but you know the truth. And Father God, it's, it's my hope and prayer that the beauty of Jesus and the incredible richness of the gospel would be so much greater and so much more beautiful than any image that we could lust after, that we'd run hard after Jesus, not because you want to beat us with a stick, because you want to love us as a nail-pierced Savior. So come. Speak through a broken sinner. Come. What is said that contains good news of the gospel, use those things to make us a fortress for Christ. And for what is said that is merely my opinion or wrong, may it quickly fall away and be forgotten. May you and you alone receive glory, and may we receive great joy. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles. If you don't have them, the words should appear on the screen. We're going to have a lengthy text before us. I'm going to give us a little bit of a running commentary as we go along. But let's be mindful that we're reading God's holy and errant word. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war, apparently weather conditions were such in the winter, it wasn't favorable. Even the fields weren't ripe for men to go and, and to eat and to graze. And so it was springtime when kings go off to war. But David, being a king, instead sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. I want you to notice, maybe underline all the times you see the word sent. It's amazing here. David sent out the entire Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. Probably not too atypical. Maybe getting up from a nap, sleeping through the heat of the day. Maybe getting up to have a stroll. I mean, sometimes you want to read into this as he's just out there trying to be a peeping Tom. Maybe innocently, but something is causing him to be out there. And from the roof, he saw a beautiful woman bathing. The woman was very 
beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Here you have David seeing somebody. He's up on the roof. He's now engaged in a lustful glaze. Now you have this king after God's own heart. His heart is changing. He's becoming more of a peeping Tom. He's becoming more of a dirty old man. And what he's going to do, he's going to respond to his lust. This is the first trouble spot. Instead of running, instead of doing what 2 Timothy 2.22 tells us, to flee the lust of our youth, to put on our PF flyers and get out of town, to get off the roof, to quit gazing. Instead, David acts upon it. And he's going to send someone to find out about her. And don't you love scripture? Don't you love what they said about this lustful object? Oh, David, that is Bathsheba. She's got a name. She's more than an object for you to lust after, David. David, she has a father. Someone you'll have to deal with, Iliam. And by the way, he is in the line of your mighty men. He is somebody close to you, David. He's somebody loyal to you, David. He's a friend of yours, David. Stop it. And by the way, he's Uriah the Hittite's wife. Wife. Wife, David. She's not yours. Uriah is being loyal to you. He is where you should be. He's fighting the Lord's battles. And what are you doing? You're lusting after his wife. Quit it, David. But he didn't. You know, it's interesting because uh, Bathsheba, throughout the commentaries, gets mixed reviews. Many of them will say, well, what was she doing bathing where the king could see her? Again, the best of my studies, I don't know that she was necessarily doing something wrong. Um, some would say she was, she knew. But I think the point is for you women this. Your bodies that God has created, uh, God has given us eyes for, it is your job to be modest. It is your job to be mindful. And the way you dress, the way you are, the way you conduct yourself, do not allow us to stumble. It may be flattery to you. It may make you feel good that you get a response, a turn head or a whistle. But don't you dare lead us into sin. I really don't think Bathsheba had a lot of culpability. I mean, this was the king and the king was summoning her. And I don't know what she could have done. Maybe she should have done more of Joseph and fleed and said, how could I do this and sin against God? But I put a lot more blood on David's hands. Okay, David sent once. Okay, listen to what God did. He teed it up for him. I mean, the guys come back and they say, now, David, let me tell you about this woman. <laughs> Bad news. She's not yours. Run. And look what he does. He sends the second time messengers to get her. Unbelievable. I mean, can you believe it? Can you believe where he's fallen? I mean, this is our David. This is our king. This is our hero. Now, even after the incredible roadblock of, uh-uh, he's going to plow right through it. How many of those have we plowed through? How many red lights has God given us and yet even when we know we're heading down the wrong path. Look at the incredible power of sin. Then David sent messages to get her. She came to him and slept with her. And now they have parenthetically here in the NIV, uh, now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And you may want to think, well, that's kind of odd. The Bible would want to tell us that. Why in the world would it want to tell us about this poor woman's cycle? You want to know why? Okay, now where's Uriah, her husband? Battlefield. Having this deal, 
You know what it's saying? David, you're the father. We don't need to do any DNA testing. We don't need to do any paternity tests. You are the father. You're the one. It's awesome. It's beautiful. God is making crystal clear for all of us to know that this woman was clearly conceiving David's child. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Young people, sex outside of God's marriage will always, 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 always have consequences. Always. Always. Yes, maybe not everyone will turn into a pregnancy. Not everyone will turn into venereal disease. But every single one will be disgracing what we should be doing to God. It'll be spitting in what he has given to us as a marriage institution. Every one of them, through guilt, through brokenness, sex outside of marriage has consequences every time. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Did he care? If he cared, where would he be? He'd be there. And so now he starts to, to cover his tracks. So tell me about Joab. Tell me about the battle, Uriah. You're one of my mighty men. You're my trusted guy. Tell me about the war. Look at the sin that he is falling into. Then David said to Uriah, Hey, now you know what? Go down to your house and wash your feet. There's a lot said about what wash your feet could mean. Um, uh, some that I can't tell you here. It's a family church. But basically, it was an encouragement to go, and my friend, on the battlefield, go and be with your wife. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. A little bubbly, you know, little, little candles, little romance. I don't know what it was. David, you know, caring about Uriah, sent a little gift, make sure that everything was just right. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master servants. It did not go down to his house. Unbelievable. The noble one here is Uriah. David was told, Uriah did not, uh, did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Uriah, probably in a tone that was questioning his manhood, probably in a tone that just, you know, was kind of belittling. Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Maybe a couple elbows. Come on, man. We all know Bathsheba. She's a beautiful woman. What are you doing? Come on, David. Uriah said to David, again, listen to his nobility. The ark and, and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander, Joab, and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, unbelievable, as surely as you live. And here's one who's about ready to take his life. As surely as you will, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem the day and the next, that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Uriah as a drunk was more noble than the king. Uriah as a drunk reflected more Christ-like characteristics than the man after God's own heart. Oh, what lust does to us. 
Oh, how far he has fallen. In the morning, David, listen, look at this, look at this. He wrote a letter to Joab. And you know what he did with it? He sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Now, there's a few things that we got to probably just stop here and say. Deuteronomy 27, 24. And this is something that David certainly will know. Deuteronomy 27, 24 says this. Cursed is anyone who kills their neighbor secretly. What is David doing? He's killing his neighbor secretly and having him carry his own letter. Deuteronomy 22.22 says, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. That includes the king. How is this king acting? This king is acting like one who is cursed. This king is acting like one who should be killed for what he has done, sleeping with another man's wife. This is our King David. And now he's going to give this letter to Uriah. So Joab had the city under siege. He put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Listen, Joab is in on this. If you read through Scripture, Joab's a snake. I'm telling you, he is a snake. And Joab, to cover up for the king, he can't just put Uriah out there. He's got to have some expendable other ones go up to the front line. It'd be too much of a, too, too clear of what he was doing. So he sent Uriah up there. They withdrew. And it wasn't just Uriah who died. So Joab sent full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, because he used terrible tactics, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Embimelech? Son of Jerub Basheth, did not a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall? So he died in Thebes. Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, By the way, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Done deal. We got it done. Took care of a little business. Yeah, it wasn't the greatest tactic. But that problem is out of the way. The messenger set out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had said to him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the opening, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows down at your servants from the wall. And some of the king's men... I mean, just think of this. I mean, David should be, just, it should be piercing his heart. These are your men that are out there doing what you should be doing. These are your men, David. They're being loyal. And some of them died. Moreover, your servant... Look at that. Your servant Uriah the Hittite... The noble one, the mighty one, is dead. And David flippantly says to the messenger, can you believe this? This is David. This is David. This is the writer of the Psalms. This is, this is the godly one. Look what he says. Told him, well, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. You know, the sword devours one as well as another. Press against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, 
David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And oh, how it displeased the Lord. No, duh. Let me say why. We read Psalm 51, and Psalm 51 is interesting because it's a response that when Nathan goes to David and he finally confesses, uh, Psalm 51 is kind of David's pouring out his heart. He's saying things like, God, create in me a clean heart. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. God, wash me with hyssop. Make me white as snow. And I want you to hear really good news for each and every one of you. No matter what sin you've committed, no matter what crime against the holy God, no matter how ugly, how heinous, how horrible, there's a God who's merciful. And there's a Son who saves. His name is Jesus. And He's got blood. Blood that was shed for sinners like us. And it makes us white as snow. There's good news. We can run to Him and be cleansed and be loved and be forgiven if we truly come to Him in repentance and faith. And this is what David was doing. But David says something really, really bizarre. He says basically that I have sinned against God and God alone. Listen to uh, what Psalm 51.4 says. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and and justified when you judge. What in the world is David saying? He sinned horribly against Bathsheba. He sinned horribly. He murdered Uriah the Hittite. Why is now he coming before God in the perspective of sin and saying against you, a holy God, and no one else have I truly done what is ultimately wrong? Because he knew that's where the offense was primary. In a holy God's eyes. And he knew that's the one he had to deal with. He knew that he was a cursed man. He knew what he did was evil. Let me just, let me just look at it from God's perspective. And let's, let's take the Ten Commandments for a moment. And let's just look at which ones David broke. Okay? Now this is, this is Jeff doing this and and this is, I take a little bit of liberty here, but I'm telling you what, let's start. Number one of the Ten Commandments is have no other God before me. You know what David did? David put his lust before God. He worshipped and obeyed his lust rather than God. That's what we do when we sin. We're putting that above God. That's why before lust enters a picture, love of God exits. The first thing that happens is that exit. He had a God before his God, and it was his lust. His second one is no idol. What was his idol? It was an image of a beautiful woman's body. He lusted after it. That was the image he bowed to. That was the image he worshipped. That was the image that he made into deity. So that was breaking number two. Misusing the name of God. This was the king of God's people. He smeared the name of Yahweh. He smeared the name of his God. Keeping the Sabbath holy. I had to think about this one. But remember, it was time when kings go off to war. David was resting. He was resting at the wrong time. God had him somewhere else. And instead, he was not keeping the Sabbath holy. Honoring the father and mother. It really means the catechism unpacks this for us so well. Honoring authority. He did not honor Elam, the father of Bathsheba. He did not honor uh, um, Uriah the Hittite. He did not honor authority the way he should. Murder. Anybody have any problem with murder? He killed him. I love what 
what uh, uh, the next chapter says, 12.9. It says, you murdered him. Don't, you murdered him. Your sword. You may have used the Ammonites, but you murdered Uriah. Clearly, he was guilty of murder. Adultery. Well, there's a no-brainer there. Stealing. He stole Uriah's, what Nathan would say, little you. False testimony. He spun the whole story. And he had Uriah carry it. And it all began with number 10. Coveting his neighbor's wife. You see, it was a big deal to God. It was a big deal to God. He's holy. He's without sin. All sin's a big deal to him. And here was a man after heart after God. And instead he became a dirty old man. A peeping Tom. An adulterer. A murderer. Sin is a big deal to God. Now here's the response. What do we do? What do we do with this? The first thing is this. We need to cut out that which makes you lust. Cut out that which makes you lust. Matthew 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 27 and 30. I want you to listen closely, please. And I want you to ask, God, am I cutting out that which makes me lust in my life? You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then Jesus goes on to say this, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And I think if I were to ask each and every one of you, do you really believe Jesus is serious when he tells us to gouge our eyes out? We'd say, no, he can't really be serious about that. And so what we tend to do is ignore this problem and say it's not that serious, we don't take it serious. But let me ask you the question then. If Jesus says, if you're dealing with adultery, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, what does he mean? If he doesn't mean it's for us literally to rip our eyeballs out, what does he mean? Why would he say it? Why does he be flippant with that? In 1 Peter 2.11, it says that lust wages war on our souls. And I think, Orangewood, our biggest problem is we don't believe it. I'm telling you, our biggest problem, we don't believe lust wages war against our soul. We don't think it's that big a deal. Maybe we got a little pornography problem. Maybe we look at some of the things we don't do. Maybe we fantasize about people that aren't our wives. Maybe there's some issues in our lives that are a little gray. But do we really believe it's raging war against our soul? It says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and aliens to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. There's some things we got to gouge out. Maybe it's your computer. Maybe it's your cable. Maybe it's a relationship. I'm reading a book. I'm almost done. I just picked it up on Friday. It's called Lone Survivor. It's an incredible story about a Navy SEAL in Afghanistan. I believe it was the largest loss of special ops forces, and he was the only one standing. And much of the book talks about his training. Oh, my goodness. They kill these guys. I mean, they're amazing trained warriors so they can fight because they expect a battle and there's no way they're going to survive unless they're trained warriors and for somehow I think Satan's take the church and says it's not a big battle is it really waging war 
And we don't train ourselves like warriors for Jesus so we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. We get soft. I said, we're in a war. We're in a war for our souls. And lust sometimes seems to be winning. And we got to start cutting some things out. Things in our life, and maybe it's embarrassing. And, and maybe it's tough to tell your spouse, you know what, I can't handle cable. But do it for your soul, for your family. Cut out that which makes you lust. Cut off that which leads you to lust. I love what Romans 13, 14 says. Romans 13, 14 says this, Rather clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your sinful nature. It really says, don't make any provision for lust. Don't make any provision for something that's going to cause you to stumble. Cut it off. Strangle it. Cut it at the source. If there's a relationship right now that you're flirting with that will lead you into temptation, cut it off. If you can't handle walking around the roof of your house because you notice naked women, maybe the roof of your house is your living room, your family room, or wherever, don't go on the roof. Let me encourage you, any men you travel, before you check into a room, make no provisions for your lust. Cut it off. Tell them, listen, I don't want anything in my room. Do not allow me to have access to anything. Cut it off. Before you get there and the doors close and no one can see you and you're by yourself, cut it off. If you can't bring your computer in the hotel room with you, don't bring it. Cut it off. Don't make provisions at all. Listen, we're so sinful, we're going to try to find a way. Block channels, put computers in safe places, cut off. But listen, put on Christ. Here's the biggest thing I want to say to you, Orangewood. Here's the biggest thing, and maybe this is a little bit different than what you've heard. Put on Jesus. There's a love affair for your soul that can never be greater than Jesus. There's nothing greater than than being loved by him and experiencing his love and putting on the righteousness, the robe of Christ, to be reminded of the sins that have set you free, to pick up your cross and to follow him daily. Listen, you want to fight lust? You want to fight it? Put on Christ. Remind yourself you're a child of the king. Drink deeply from the gospel. That's the only hope we have. And I I know it sounds trite. Are you kidding me? My pastor says to fight lust, i got to love Jesus. That's the only thing I can tell you. It's true. He's better. He's better than anything that could lead you to lust. Nothing will be able to satisfy your soul. Only Jesus can, I promise you. Put him on. Run to him. Say, I want to love you more. I want to love you so much. I, I can't see that. Please show me the beauty of Christ. Show me the cross. Show me the sacrifice. Let me put on Christ. Let me, as Ephesians 4.22 says, put off your old self. Pick up your cross and follow him. Lastly, walk in the spirit. Galatians 5.16. Exercise your faith. Walk in him. Gosh, I could, I could go on. And again, we've, we've run out of time. How's your lust problem? Really, the question is, how's your love for God? How's your relationship with Jesus? Remember, remember, I can't let you go without telling you that nothing separates us from the love of Christ. 
And for those of you who are deeply, darkly into lust and pornography and and relationships you shouldn't be, there's hope. Turn, turn to a Savior who's merciful. Turn before you do more damage. Turn, repent, humble yourself before the Lord. For some of you, there's so much stuff in your life right now. You need help. You need professional help. Seek it out. Come to your pastors. Let us know we're broken sinners too. Don't try to struggle on this for you, alone. Some of you are really, really deeply into this. And maybe no one else knows. And maybe the Spirit of God is hammering on you right now. Get help. Get help. But just remember that there's a Father who loves you and He runs to prodigals. And there's a Son who died for you. And His blood is real and it's powerful. And the power of the Holy we can do all things for Christ. You can kick this. You really can. We might have to struggle with it for the rest of our lives, but let us walk in the Spirit. Let us feed it orange. But I think the biggest problem we have oftentimes is we don't really walk in the Spirit. We don't grow in Him. We don't feed our souls. We let the junk of the world come in. Let's get with Jesus and remember what He's done for us. Let's fall deeply, deeply in love for Him. It's the only hope we have. Because we have amazing grace of a God who comes and saves sinners like us. Lust. How's your lust problem? Really, how's your love for God? Let us pray. Now, Father God, we look at David and we're so humbled. It's frightening. It's frightening to see the depths of one that loved you so much. Father, in a lot of ways, his, his kingdom would never recover. He experienced death of four children. But Father... You forgave him. And he looked in hope to your son coming and rescuing him on the cross. And it seems, it seems at the end of a message like this to say our hope is to love Jesus. <laughs> but the truth is, that's our hope. He loves us, sinners. He's demonstrated that love. He's empowered us with the Spirit. And oh, are we prone to wander. God, we're choosing lust over you. What idiots. God, break us. Break us, God. Please, may the weight of our sin just crush us to the point where it just drives us to to Jesus and the cross again. Just the beauty of, of redemption. Father, for, for those of my brothers and sisters who are just really deep in this right now, God, they, they're lost in it. And, and, and I know that they're ashamed. God, we're, we're here to help them. And more importantly, your spirit's there to empower them. God, we've got to be a church that's authentic. We've we got to be able to deal with these things and not shoot our wounded. This has got to be a safe place. The gospel's real. Father, for us to be a city on a hill... For us to be what you want us to be, we've got to experience this amazing grace that sinners have been set free. And now in that freedom, we don't want to put on the old self and fall back into sin, but we want to live a life of freedom, of joy, of knowing and loving Jesus. Give us Jesus, and may he be enough. Thank you for your amazing grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand. As you stand, let's continue to read from Psalm 51. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. 
Deliver me from blood guilt, O God. You who are God, my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Let's sing together.